Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Uh, I love that video because it, um, it kind of in an inside-out way makes a great point, and that is that mothers are always teaching, right? Always teaching, always training, always rebuking, always correcting. And it's a good thing because if they didn't do that, where would we be as adults without the training and instruction of our mothers? Uh, blessed is the child who has godly instruction in his life. Almost by definition, a mom is a teacher, a teacher of some of the most basic and important life skills. Well, we're going to be studying uh, for the next number of weeks about a young, uh, a, young, a young man, a son, who made his mother very proud, a man by the name of Timothy. And we know about Timothy from two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to him, and today we're beginning a new series called The Apprentice, uh, based on Paul's first letter to the young pastor, Timothy. As we're going to see in weeks to come, Timothy had the benefit not only of having a godly mother named Eunice, but also a godly grandmother named Lois. Uh, Timothy was of mixed parentage. His mother was a Jew and his father a Gentile. And it was through Eunice and Lois, his mother and grandmother, that Timothy learned the Hebrew scriptures. So that when Paul came on his first missionary journey to Lystra, he was able to, uh, Timothy was able to understand that Paul was talking about the Messiah, and Timothy accepted Christ as his Savior and Lord. Timothy grew phenomenally as a young believer, so much so that on Paul's second missionary journey a couple of years later, as he passed through Lystra once again, the people of Lystra bragged over and over about this Timothy and, and how, uh, how he had grown in the faith. And Paul got to know him and decided, you know what, I'm going to take him along as an apprentice. So Timothy joined on that second missionary journey and then stayed with Paul pretty much for the next 20 years in various capacities as a traveling companion, as a friend, as a son in the faith, as an apprentice, as a delegate of the apostle in various places where Paul assigned him. Well, we're looking at one of those assignments that Paul gave Timothy today. Paul is now in the latter years of his life. We think that this letter is written between the first of Paul's imprisonments in Rome and the second imprisonment where he eventually would lose his life. And there's a several-year window in there where Paul and Timothy resume their work and begin traveling around. And one of the places they go is to Ephesus. <clears throat> now, Ephesus is a prominent church in Asia Minor, one where Paul had spent a lot of time, three years of his life, teaching there in the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. And uh, they should have been a well-instructed church. But as Paul and Timothy come back to Ephesus, Paul finds something that's a little bit disturbing. And that is that the people of Ephesus apparently are 
dabbling in some things they ought not to be dabbling in. There's some things being taught in Ephesus that ought not to be taught. And so today, uh, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of Paul's first letter to Timothy and what we can learn from these verses and from the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy in general, is, is really great stuff. It tells us a lot about the work of a pastor, which is pretty important for us to pay attention to in that we're in a season where we're discerning who the next senior pastor or lead pastor of Bayside Chapel will be. You learn not only uh, about the work of a pastor, but you learn about what makes for a healthy church and and what makes for those those things that will help a believer to truly thrive in the Christian life. And so today we're looking at the first 11 verses, uh, verses in which the Apostle Paul gives Timothy his assignment in the church at Ephesus as he leaves Timothy there to, to carry on the work that must be done. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Now this is probably with reference to the fact that Timothy came to Christ as a result of Paul's ministry, but it also likely has to do with the fact that Timothy became like a spiritual son to Paul, that Paul took him under wing and and mentored him and discipled him along the way. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, This is a very standard greeting that Paul often gave greetings of this type at the beginnings of his letters. And now we come to the assignment. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, so Paul uh, felt compelled to leave Ephesus and go to Macedonia, but he sees that there's unfinished business there, and so he wants Timothy to stay behind. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now let's break this passage down a bit so we can understand Timothy's assignment and the challenge he has there in Ephesus. It seems to me that when you boil it all down, Timothy's main job as a pastor there in in Ephesus is to simply keep focused on the gospel. Keep focused on the gospel. As a pastor, he is to help the church in Ephesus keep focused on the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 3, where he says, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Different from what? Different from the gospel that Paul proclaims as he states in verse 11. In other words, there is a body of teaching 
on which the church must keep focused, and there are all kinds of other things that ought not to be taught. What is the doctrine that is to be taught? Well, Paul is very clear about this in his letters, in particular in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's clear that Paul, when he's talking about don't let anybody teach any different doctrine, what he's talking about is any doctrine that deviates from the gospel. The earliest church was rigorous about defining what was the doctrine that all followers of Christ should agree upon. And by 140 AD, the Apostles' Creed came to be regarded as a faithful summary of what doctrine must be taught. And so for nearly 2,000 years now, the church has universally agreed on this. Some of you grew up in church traditions where you recited the Apostles' Creed every week. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. From the earliest days, Christians everywhere and of almost every denomination, with minor exceptions, have agreed this is what must be taught. This is the essence of the gospel. And by implication, if someone is teaching a different doctrine from this, they need to be told to stop teaching that. He says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Keep focused on the gospel. And in the rest of the passage, Paul names for Timothy two kinds of teaching in particular that must be rejected. First, he says, reject speculative teaching. Keep focused on the gospel. That means you reject speculative teaching. He talks about that in verse 4. So you're charged certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Instead of sticking with that gospel that was entrusted to us and received by faith, some are, are going off on myths and endless genealogies and promoting speculations. Now, Paul doesn't tell us specifically what myths, what genealogies, what speculations these false teachers are engaging in, but it does say that deviating from the faith that has been entrusted to us ought not to be allowed, especially if it's leading in these directions into these kinds of speculations. Some scholars point out that in the first century among, among Jews, of people of Jewish background, there was a fascination with something called the Book of Jubilees. The book of Jubilees was kind of a commentary on the Old Testament book of Genesis. Have you ever read through the book of Genesis and, and wondered about certain things? Like, 
who are all these people in these genealogies and what did they do and what was their life like? And, and by the way, where did Cain and Abel get their wives and, and uh, you know, other things like that? What language was spoken in the garden? Well, the book of Jubilees tried to help out the Holy Spirit by filling in all the blanks. And so whoever wrote the book of Jubilees kind of elaborated on, on those genealogies and who these people were and what they accomplished. And, and uh, it tried to answer the question of where Cain and Abel got their, their wives. And it, it divided up angels into four categories and speculated about whether fallen angels had had sexual relations with human women resulting in a race of giants that was eradicated in the flood. All kinds of genealogies and myths and speculations that went way beyond what the book of Genesis taught. The point is, if this kind of thing was being taught in the church... Myths and genealogies promoting speculation, maybe leading to arguments about things on which the scriptures are silent, then it not only takes our attention away from the essential truth of the gospel, but it also leads us to meaningless talk, time-wasting, meaningless talk. Paul says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart <clears throat> and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what gospel teaching results in. If, if we're focused on the gospel of Jesus and we're growing in our appreciation of God's great love for us in Christ and what he did for us, and we're beginning to love each other with that kind of love, well, that kind of teaching promotes love. Not arguments, but where people are wandering off into other teaching and speculating about things they have no sure knowledge of, you're going to have disagreements and wrangling over words all over the place. He says in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion, meaningless talk. Imagine going to a Bible study in the church at Ephesus where all anybody wants to talk about is the book of Jubilees and whether Enoch really was the first human being who had written language because the angels taught it to him and, and whether Hebrew really was the language spoken in the Garden of Eden, even by the animals. These are the kinds of things that the book of Jubilees was about. Well, what good is that? It's vain discussion. It's meaningless speculation. And all it does is invite arguments where nobody becomes more loving. What might speculative teaching or preaching look like today? I like what one pastor named Conrad Morrell said. He said, speculative preaching majors on what might be or what could be instead of what is. Uh, you know, we've often said here at Bayside, never believe anything you hear from the pulpit unless you can see it in the word of God. We're not going to deal in what might be or what could be. We're, we're going to talk about what are the things that God has clearly said. He says that the result of speculative preaching is that it hopes to invoke a response or decision through the emotional and mental agitation that is stirred over possibilities, not facts. Like getting Christians worked up about thinking about potential political or economic disaster based on current events, which, by the way, usually is a result of misquoting Jesus. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, oh, there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's famine and earthquakes in various places, this must be the end, like Jesus said. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in various places, <clears throat> but that is not yet the end. He said, those are just the beginnings of birth pangs. These things are going to happen. 
Don't let it disturb you. And yet we have people almost in every generation who are going to point to whatever's happening in the news and say, this is, this is sure, a sure sign that the end is upon us any moment now. It, the point of it is to try to get people worked up in, in the speculation. Or then you have some prophecy watcher on TV warning about a particular world figure and, and why that person must be the Antichrist and what the mark of the beast truly will be. Uh, can I tell you, I've been a Christian for over 60 years, and I've heard just about everything there is to hear about who the Antichrist is supposed to be, from, from uh, Henry Kissinger to Elon Musk, and a whole bunch of people in between. We don't know who it is, and it's vain to speculate about such things. This might be fascinating stuff to haggle over, but is it profitable? The gospel tends to get lost when we wander into speculating on things where the scriptures aren't clear. Instead of leading to sincere love, it's just going to lead to arguments. There's a guy I know I see about once a year because he comes to my house to perform a certain service. And uh, every year when he comes, because he knows I'm a pastor, he always leads with the same question. Hey, do you think we're living in the last times? And I'll say, well, of course we're living in the last times. We've been living in the last times since Jesus ascended to heaven. You know that, right? And, and, he, uh, and then he goes off on some diatribe. He never really lets me give my opinion. He goes off talking about, you know, something he heard about on the Internet or something he read on a website somewhere. And he's got, you know, the, the latest and greatest theory on who the Antichrist really is and how it's all going to go down. And the last time I saw him, there was a distinct anti-Semitism seeping in that somehow the Jews were to blame for everything that's going wrong in the world. You know, I forgot to tell him this. I should have thought it come to me when I was talking to him last time. But that's the surest way to fall for the Antichrist's antics. You know that? Because that's the Antichrist platform. The Antichrist is going to blame the Jews for everything and try to turn world opinion against the Jewish people. So if you're letting anti-Semitism creep into your thinking, you're falling right in line with Antichrist thinking. I've tried mightily to help this guy see that all his speculation is getting him nowhere. The gospel is the last thing he wants to talk about, but the thing he most needs. Keep focused on the gospel. Resist speculative teaching. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Reject speculative teaching. And then he says, reject legalistic teaching. Reject speculative teaching and reject legalistic teaching. See, not only are some of these teachers in Ephesus engaging in useless speculations and empty discussions, but Paul goes on to say about them in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They fancy themselves teachers of the law, which was an honorific title among those of Jewish background. They saw themselves as real Bible scholars. We get into the deep stuff when they really don't know what they're talking about. But they sound very confident in the nonsense they spout. Now, how many people I've encountered down through the years who fancied themselves Bible scholars? They went really deep, but they went deep into nonsense. It's hard to tell whether this is a second category of teacher he's talking about here, these teachers of the law, 
or whether these are the same teachers who mix in speculations about myths and genealogies with some kind of legalism. What's clear, however, is that the teaching Timothy is charged with ending also has a legalistic bent to it. They desire to be teachers of the law without really understanding the things they talk about. Now, that's not to say that the law of Moses is bad in and of itself. Paul is very clear about that everywhere in his writings. The law itself is noble and right and good, properly understood. And he says the same thing here in verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good if you use it right. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. The law is not laid down for those who have already been made righteous in Christ, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Paul is consistent in teaching that the main purpose of a law is to show us our sin, particularly those who are far from God, to show them their sin. The law is not able to make us righteous, and yet that's how some use it in the church. They keep shouting to believers, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, as if that will make us all behave, as if that's what it takes to make good little Christians out of us. No, the law isn't meant for keeping Christians in line, but for showing unbelievers how much they need Jesus He says in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who are far from God. Scholars often point out that the list of sins that Paul has in verses 9 and 10 roughly follow the order of the Ten Commandments. And so this first pairing of three lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, that pretty much covers the first four of the Ten Commandments that all have to do with honoring God. And the rest of the, the, the sins he lists here in verses 9 and 10 cover the last six commandments and how people violate them in some pretty extreme ways. So the law says, honor your father and mother. And Paul says, yeah, the law is for those who strike their fathers and mothers for those who actually do their parents harm. The law says you shall not murder. And Paul says, yeah, it's for murderers too. The law says you shall not commit adultery. And Paul says, yeah, the law is meant for the sexually immoral and for men who practice homosexuality. I think what Paul is doing here is he's he's basically saying the the law is meant to, to convict anyone who is engaging in sexual relations outside the bounds of marriage as God established it. The the law says you shall not steal. And he says, yeah, it's for enslavers. It's for people who steal people, even. The law says you shall not bear false witness. And he says, yeah, the law is for liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. See, these teachers of the law imagine that by trying to impose the law on believers of Ephesus that they're doing a great service to the church when they don't even really understand the true purpose of the law. The law is not for those who've already been made righteous in Christ. It's for those who still need to be convicted of their sin. I love the story that John Enser tells about how when he was a teenager and there was a hat that he wanted at a local department store, And so he went there, and he had a pocket full of cash. He could easily afford the hat, but 
as he thought about it, he thought, why should I pay for this hat when I can take it for free? And then I'll have plenty of cash for something else. So he tried to sneak the hat out of the store, and at the door, he was met by the store manager who caught him red-handed. And he said, in that moment, I wish I was dead. And the store manager, he said, obviously noticed that I wasn't yet a hardened criminal. And so he took the hat from me, and he said, I'll make a deal with you. If you go home and tell your parents what you did, I won't call the police. But if I don't hear from your parents in the next 24 hours, I'm going to call the police. So he said, I was pretty much jammed. I was stuck. I had to go home and confess to my parents what I did. And he said as he did so, his 18-year-old sister overheard him confessing. And her response was, how totally embarrassing. I've got a brother who is a thief. She called me a thief, he said. But then he goes on to say, but becoming ashamed of what we are as a result of what we do is a good thing and a necessary part of getting real about guilt. If you commit adultery, you are an adulterer. If you lie, you become a liar. I stole, and I become a thief. It led me to my room, weeping and ashamed of myself. But that was good. Painful, but good. Because, you see, the whole point of the law is not just to make you feel guilty, but to drive you to Christ, who gave his life to pay for our sin, to pay the debt that we owed because of our sin. And, and it was Jesus who came alive again to set us free from the grip that sin has on us. In contrast to the law, which serves to bring to light the sinfulness of man, the gospel reveals in the person and work of Christ the gracious God who gives, forgives our sin and empowers us to live in Christ as we've never lived before. As Paul says, keep these people from speculation and legalism in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You know, I'm amazed how easy it is for Christians to fall into legalism. You know, laying down the law it seems like a natural way to keep us in line and to beat out of us our worst inclinations and, and we can be guilty of sending that kind of message, even in a church like this. Trust in Jesus to be your Savior, we say. And once you do, then sometimes unwittingly we can send the message, okay, now that you've trusted in Jesus, now you've got to keep the rules and try real hard to be a good little Christian. When in reality the message is, no, you trust in Jesus to save you from your sins, and now you depend on him to live a beautiful life you were never able to live before, empowered by the Holy Spirit to let Jesus live his beautiful life through you. He wants not only to forgive what you've done, but to change you from within. It's not about what you can do to please God. It's about what Christ wants to do in and through you by his grace. I love the illustration that Ray Ortland tells. Maybe you've heard it before. He says, we were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weakness. He came home every evening and asked, so how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations, and hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. 
We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law was always pointing out our failings. And the worst of it was, he was always right. But the remedy was always the same. He said, do better tomorrow. We didn't because we couldn't. Then Mr. Law died. And we remarried. This time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening and the house is a mess and the children are being naughty and dinner is burning on the stove and we've even had other men in the house during the day. Still, he sweeps us into his arms and says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. We are so glad to belong to him now and forever. And we long to be fully pleasing to him. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within. And it shows. How much better it is for Christians to help each other live in the fullness of who they are in Christ than to keep beating each other over the head with the law. How much better it is to keep focused on Jesus than to waste time arguing about who the Antichrist will be. It's easy to convince ourselves that our teaching is deep when it's frankly doing nobody any good. What will be good for us is to keep focused on the gospel. That should be not only Timothy's assignment, but ours. Let's keep focused on the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that transforms us in ways the law never could. Lord, we are so grateful for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ because he paid for our sins. We're thankful for the freedom we have in Christ because he makes us new and loves us with an everlasting love. Lord, let us never forget that Jesus gave his life for us in order to give his life to us, that he might live his beautiful life through us. Lord, may we as a church always be focused on the glorious gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us Let us live for his glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.